0: As always, a huge thank you to Starboard, who are once again this season's main sponsors. Starboard has a history of innovation across water sports, starting in 1994 by revolutionising the design of windsurf boards. And they've brought that bang up to date recently, bringing foil windsurfing onto the Olympic stage with their IQ foil package. Starboard got behind stand-up paddleboarding in a huge way in the early days and continued to lead the industry to reduce their environmental impact. Their focus on innovation brought them seven world champions at the ICF Worlds last year, and all of them were using their Lima paddle range. They continue to improve and innovate their boards and their paddles for all abilities across all flavors of the sport, including adventure. And you can find out more about Starboard through their website, which is linked to in the show notes. Welcome to the SUPFM podcast with me, Simon Hutchinson. Every week, I chat with interesting people from the SUP world or to people who can help us, the paddlers of the SUP tribe, to improve and to maximise our own experiences and our love of both the sport and the water. Every episode is designed to inspire or to help you get a deeper immersion into the sport through my conversations with leading athletes, scientists, explorers, TED speakers and New York Times best-selling authors and not forgetting some of the many insanely inspiring distance paddlers we've routinely had on the show. In today's episode I talk to Casper Steinfeld who despite Only being 28 as this goes out was there competing when the race scene first started in Europe and has competed and won across the world ever since. This is the first of two Casper episodes and in this first one we talk about his water background and his racing career to date. He's won some huge races in his time including the legendary Red Bull Heavy Water in San Francisco on two occasions. And if you haven't seen that race, it's as extreme as it gets. But as Casper says, he's learnt to thrive in chaos, which in part is down to his water education in cold Hawaii. So here's the first part of my two episode chat with Kasper Steinfer. Hey, Casper, welcome to SUPFM. Thanks, Simon.
1: Stoked to be here.
0: Well, it's always a great pleasure for me to speak to a six times world champion and a two times winner of Red Bull Heavy Water. But there's, there's so much more to your SUP career than just even those stellar achievements. And I really appreciate you joining us, particularly because you've had a busy few months. And as we speak, you've not long finished at Red Bull's Midsummer Vikings in Copenhagen, which by all accounts was a pretty awesome event again this year. And before that, you completed the Great Danish Paddle, where you experienced all of the weather and conditions and challenges that Denmark could throw at you as you completed the the 1,448 kilometre distance uh, around and across Denmark and congratulations on both of those achievements. I guess you haven't had any problems sh- sleeping recently.
1: <laughs> Thanks, Simon. I mean, uh, yeah, when I look back at the last, what, two, three months, it's kind of a blur. Like so much has happened. Um, right now I'm sitting here, it's Monday morning. Um, I had a bachelor party because uh, I'm getting married. Uh, so I'm, I still feel the effects of the bachelor party on my mind. But, um, you know, it's it's been a blur uh, from paddling around the Kingdom of Denmark, you know, seeing, you know, other sides of the country that I've never seen, um, to to suddenly hosting the Red Bull Midsummer Vikings, uh, you know, a team stand-up paddle event where we had over 400 paddlers on 82 teams. Uh, you know, sometimes I have to pinch myself because I can't really believe all this is happening because there's a lot of good stuff happening. But I think the last few nights I've just been sleeping like a baby, knowing that, Okay, now I can relax for a little bit. There's no nothing major happening right now.
0: Well, you you say that um, you know you've still got a busy summer ahead. The highlight the summer, as I guess people will already have guessed, comes in August, and that's not the uh, APP in London. That's your (laughs) wedding. How's the preparation going on that?
1: Um, Well, the the preparations are going. Um, You know, I'm getting married August thirteenth, and you know, I think I'm really lucky to have uh, my fiance Stina, she's she's kind of got most of it under control for now because I've been a little bit uh, distant with all my projects <laughs> and, and sporting, uh, you know, goals. So um, I think my job now is to lock down the menu, you know, what we're going to mm-hmm. eat. And we have this really cool venue in Denmark. It's this old Viking tent we're getting married in. Um, so I have to prepare the feast. That's my job, I guess.
0: Excellent. The traditional male role there, getting on with the meat and and food and so on, and obviously exactly. you've got your bachelor, you've got your bachelor party out of the way already, which is the other key responsibility that we have. It's it's tough, isn't it? <laughs> and a bloke preparing for a, a wedding. I, I know that. So we'll talk a, a bit more about racing and midsummer and and the Great Danish Paddle a, a little later on, but just tell us a little bit more about your background because you come from a family who've got a strong adventurous streak and a real love of the water. So just tell us mm-hmm. about your early relationship with water and growing up in cold Hawaii.
1: Yeah I mean um, today I'm 20 years 28 years old um, and you know growing I grew up in the cold waters of Scandinavia uh, in Denmark and the reason I don't have the classic Scandinavian accent is probably that my dad is from California and despite living in Denmark for 28 years now, still has not learned to speak Danish. <laughs> um, so, so you know, I, I was influenced by my dad and his passion for surfing. And, you know, I just grew up by the water uh, with my dad and my brother and my mom. And, you know, just playing in the ocean was very natural for me. And it was just it was really all about playing uh, and you know, the short board became a long board. And eventually, when I was a teenager, I think I was like 13 or 14. I picked up a stand up paddleboard for the first time. And you know, that kind of just triggered this life uh, on the water. Um, You know, I I realized that there was something cool about standing on a board, you know, whether it was a vessel for adventure or a vessel for competition. Um, Yeah, my my life has kind of revolved around the water in one Mm -hmm. way or another. And, you know I've been very fortunate to to live a, a life so far, um, you know, making a livelihood as well from from stand-up paddling. And uh, yeah, that's been a one hell of an adventure so far.
0: Well absolutely and and I checked out one of the documentaries uh, on you um, standing on the water and that gives us a bit of a, a taste of what it was like for you growing up in Klipmüller with your, your family and friends and it starts with a Danish TV news report of a really wild weather day and obviously you're on the northwest coast of Denmark it's got to be pretty extreme before it features in the news and amongst all of the shots of members of the public trying to stand upright in this really severe wind there's uh, a of, of three lads, teenagers, <laughs> uh, which turns out to be a young Casper and your brother and a, a friend of yours, um, heading out into what looks like sort of fairly gnarly waves there. And uh, my Danish is a little bit rusty, um, but there's also sort of various comments that people have made, you know, um, on on that news report. And uh, I guess that they're not totally supportive um, to what you you no. guys were
1: doing there. Absolutely not. I mean, I guess if you if you tr- pause the movie and like, you know, read all those uh, Facebook comments that, that you know, that were on the tabloid newspapers and stuff, uh, basically, we were being called young, stupid, suicidal. Um, I think the worst part was for my parents, like they were being called the worst parents in Denmark. Um, mm-hmm. But the, the back the backstory is that, you know, it was this, you know, storm like we get in the in the fall. Uh, you know these storms that just come roaring across, and and you know as, as surfer's like it's not that we have a death wish, but we really you know in a sense that's when Mother Nature invites you to come dance uh, when the conditions are right. And I think like uh, Nietzsche, Frederick Nietzsche kind of sums it up the best, in my opinion. Like if if you see someone doing something stupid, maybe it's because you can't hear the music they're dancing to, uh, and mm. it doesn't make sense, but. I think growing up in Denmark, one has to understand that we have a very strong water culture here, but we also have a very strong fishing culture where, you know, pe- people would go out and, you know, it was a livelihood to live from the ocean. And like, just like the same in the UK, like, um, you know, people lost their lives as well. So I grew up in a time when there was a, a paradigm shift where previously it had, Previously, going on the water in Scandinavia had meant like it was serious business. It was mm. a workplace. And now these teenagers and like all of us surfers and paddlers came in saying, no, it can also be a playground if you mm. treat it with the right respect and you know how the elements are moving. So yeah, that, that scene from Standing on Water was uh, kind of summarized the, the shift of paradigm in Scandinavia.
0: And there was some familiarity I had there because it looks like uh, growing up in Clipmullet, there weren't huge amounts of uh, cinemas to hang about in. So you got your entertainment where you could. You know, I I grew up during a period where I kind of went a bit feral with my brothers and friends and we went off and did stupid things in nature and, you know, ended up occasionally in the A&E department of the local hospital. But it teaches you things about your limits. And I think parents... You know, quite rightly, in some situations they wrap their kids up in cotton wool, but there's definitely something to be said for growing up in in that sort of environment and making your own entertainment.
1: There definitely is, and I, I think my my dad was the one that summed it up in the in the movie. Again, he calls it deep play, and you know it's you know being immersed in say, call it a game or call it a play where you know you you're, you're de- dealing with some variables which is the wind and the waves and you know all these things you can't control but you know learning to play with all these things that are potentially dangerous also makes you very aware and very you know um you know you it's it's like he said you don't just go to the roller coaster and expect to be you know amused uh you have mm. you have to be engaged in the process and like I, I still, I still kind of laugh because there's, you know, my mo- mom and dad had so much footage of my brother and I just playing around in the waves, like washing into rocks and, you know, trying to just feel our limits. But yeah. I think that that deep play, there's something about it. And I think all of us that go paddling uh, or surfing, you know, even if we're not kids, we are still playing with um, some very, very strong powers of nature. And that makes us feel alive and and makes us also you know respect boundaries but we only know where the boundaries are if we find them
0: yeah it's it's all about sort of finding those limits pushing slightly above and and beyond them so do you think that that deep immersion into that in- environment gave you a bit of an advantage when it came to your racing career in terms of reading water because that that's a formative time those teenage years and you were just seemingly in the water testing your limits at at all moments and you talk about Red Bull later on that's probably one of the the more extreme Mm -hmm. sort of races you've been involved in but your successes have come out of having that deep understanding the water and kind of how it works.
1: Yeah you know I I would say that you know, growing up here, um, you know, temperatures are are cold a lot of times. Like it's not, this is not Hawaii. Um, it's chilly and it's not always pleasant to be in the water. But because of that immersion and that deep play, you know, I got to spend many hours out there um, in very uh, torrential conditions. And I think, I think it's part of the key to where I am now. It's definitely a part of the key to where I stand right now. Um, having made a career off racing. Cause I think when I started traveling the world to races, I, I always had this power with me of, you know, when when you're freezing on the start line or the ocean is just really choppy and chaotic and you're thinking, ah, oh, that's not really ideal. I think the mindset I brought with me from a background in Denmark definitely helped, you know, I did not expect palm trees and turquoise water. Um <laughs> That was just a bonus when that happened.
0: Absolutely. It's all of those challenging situations that sort of forge you. And uh, it's been one of the consistent things speaking to all the the, the top level athletes. And I spoke to Bart last week as well. We had a similar conversation about the fact that you've got to be comfortable with discomfort. And uh, Mm -hmm. the more discomfort you put yourself in, the more you know that you can deal with any situation.
1: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, mean, Bart's a huge inspiration for me. Uh, Bart was one of the early guys in the stand-up paddle world that that I could kind of, you know, look towards as a mentor. And, and I think just, like, you know, discomfort is such an interesting topic because we live in a world where we are so comfortable. Um, you know, the contrast uh, is, you know, we have warm houses in the Western world. We have couches. We have Netflix. Uh, and I think that's, I mean, it, it's weird to say because I just feel I grew up in... Being comfortable, you know. Okay, it's mm. it's not comfortable when you're surfing in the middle of winter and you come walking back to shore with numb fingers and a, and you know, brain is is just freezing. Uh, but but there's something that makes you feel alive when you when you test those contrasts of of comfort and discomfort. Where it's, it's like I think Bart was the one that said the food tastes way better when you've had an epic adventure um, yeah. and like that's only something i can say i'm maybe becoming more aware of as i'm getting older now where like wow this is actually it's, i i really get a kick out of like doing this circumnavigation of denmark because i hit some sides of myself that um you know i didn't really know existed so mm. uh, so i mean i, I don't stop me because i feel i could go off on this ramble about discomfort but it's it's really a fascinating topic
0: <laughs> well we're all about rambles on here and uh, and, and we've sort of follow them off in all, all sorts of directions and it's an, it's an area that i'm i'm interested in. i'm also interested in what you said earlier on about having to get actively involved you know yourself on the water and this is a kind of problem that that i've sort of identified in the uk because obviously we've got you know loads of people worldwide who have joined the sport and for a lot of them they just use them as beach toys and that's fine Mm. as long as they don't have an offshore wind but there's this business about actually taking accountability for your own safety out there and and being aware of what's going on and it's a really difficult message to put across because people are in the cozy environment you've got Mm. a car with an airbag and and so on and you've got all of those protections but what they don't realize is that you're going into an environment where on a bike if you get a puncher you you can step off your bike and, and get a taxi no such opportunities if you're two miles offshore and uh, and there's something wrong your your paddleboard's deflating or mm-hmm. something it, it's a really difficult message to to get across i just wonder whether you'd observe that sort of thing in in denmark as well
1: oh it's it's 100 percent. it's the same here it's uh it's the ultimate paradox uh, mm. in one way because because you know we there's no doubt that you know stand-up paddling is ha- has been on an upward trajectory like since you know since Laird started messing around in Hollywood back in 7 or when it was. and like you know it, it's par- stand-up paddling is the paradox because it is so accessible in a sense. like anyone can literally on the right board go out stand up, and have a magical experience of trying something new. But at the same time, because it is so accessible, it also creates that, you know, um, it gets people out there that are not paying attention. And, it's, it, and this is really difficult to talk about because one can easily get very polarized uh, on one, one end of the discussion or the other. Because if you look at from my perspective, like I came into the world of stand-up paddling from a surfing background. And with surfing, you're like playing in—you know—you're playing in rough conditions a lot of time. And when I was a kid, like my dad made a very strong point out of me understanding, yeah, yeah, you can get in the water almost wherever you want, but the real key is to understand how do you get back from the water Mm. in situation where the wind has picked up or your leash has snapped and you have to swim in. Um, Like we. We were like mentored to be aware of all the conditions around us. And now it's just funny, like, with, you know, you can buy inflatable stand up paddle boards at literally the supermarket down the street, which means also because they're priced as they are, people are giving it a shot. And, um, all uh, like, it's the same picture here as everywhere in the world. Um, some people get out there and unfortunately end in bad situations where, um, you know, it's it's a it's I don't really know what the solution to the problem is, but uh all I can say is that we're in Denmark we're trying and when I say we, it's you know, myself, it's other stand-up paddlers, it's the federation we have. We're trying to educate. We're trying mm. to, you know, make people aware of how the mechanisms of water work. And it's uh it's tragic when when it goes wrong, but I keep believing that the like the leading star is the stand up paddling and water is a huge uh benefit like how do you say it? like it's a huge um it can add quality it can add quality to people's lives that that's that's the bottom line and just hopefully we can figure out to tell people how to play correctly or mm-hmm. play while being aware I guess that's what I'm trying to say is it's a paradox because it's so yeah. accessible anyone can do it
0: and it's the human factor isn't it in there because you know people when you're solving a problem like that you know you you can go to equipment so how can we make the equipment as safe as we can Mm -hmm. you know have you got the right kit i mean there's a knowledge element in that there's knowledge about how things work tides and you know coastal patterns and so on but there's the human factor as well and and people don't necessarily spot the risk you know there are people who feel fear when there's no risk and they're people where there's risk out there and they just don't feel the fear because they they don't know what they don't know
1: yeah and if f- fear is not a bad thing like you gotta mm. remember fear is probably fear and angst uh as was what's kept us alive as a human race uh, because if everyone was if everyone just had no brains and jumped into the river like we'd all be swept away and mm. drowned somewhere but i think it's it's like like the fear fear is a good thing because it makes us aware you know, we, we ultimately, we don't want to die, but the, like that, that should be the premise right there that we mm-hmm. should all be a little bit afraid and then, you know, either educate ourselves or make good decisions based on the fear. If you don't have fear and you just blatantly go out, like say on a day where it's either outgoing tide or I don't know, 30 knots offshore wind, yeah. then then you're missing something up here. But I also have a hard time in this discussion with you know, now it's like if you say it's a safety issue, like because it's like for example in here in Denmark, um, you know, stand-up paddling is booming and you know the regul like say the when 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 regulatory how do you say, uh
0: yeah, the functions just-
1: come yeah, bodies come into place, yeah. Like when suddenly because it's so popular, we get these like like, for example, mandates that say everyone has to wear a life vest. And I'm not advocating against life vests here. But say when suddenly, because so many people are paddling on the ocean now, the regulatory mm. bodies say everyone should wear a life vest. Well, I understand the premise of that. But if you're a surfer and you're playing in the waves, there is a time and there's a time not to have a life vest Like if you're trying to go under. Um, and it's just I what what I... I can't control what regulatory bodies do. I can't control what other people do, but I can encourage, uh, as you said, it's Simon, the human factor, you know, mm-hmm. the individual human to, to, um, pay attention. Um, and, you know, try to, we can all try to help each other as much as we can, because I think it's, it's you and me and everyone that has a board under their arm when they stand on the beach or the dock or at the lake, um, that's when you make the decision if you go or don't go yeah and i don't know if it was jerry lopez or who said it like if if in doubt maybe don't go out or at least dive dive into understanding the energy at at, at work there
0: and just bring things back to you here, Casper, and that, that was a really useful and really interesting um, diversion there, because it, it's been obsessing me and, and a lot of people over here for a while. But you had a bit of a fear of water, incredibly, to start with, mm-hmm. didn't you? Didn't you I, it, have a fear of putting your head underwater? That was
1: astounding to hear that. I, I had, um, I, it was in my early years, so it's very vague, the memories of it, but I have this visual picture in my head of, you know, of course, my dad being a surfer from California thought like I should surf. Um, And I think he brought me out on his tandem surfboard like before I could even walk um, or at least when I was a toddler. And he, you know, eventually I probably fell in the water and I just have this vivid, (laughs) vivid imagery in my mind of like looking up and seeing the sun on the surface of the water and just feeling out of control. And that I don't know if that was just a dream or something that happened, but in in my like childhood years, I just had this phobia of getting my head underwater. I, I could not uh, I could not stomach the thought of being stuck underwater and not getting up again. Um, and you know that was not exactly practical when my dad wanted to take me surfing, and when I had a little brother that was you know didn't did not mind getting mm. his face wet. So so I remember just you know not it was not fond memories when I was a kid um but that fear you know that fear stuck with me and you know eventually like I I don't want to admit like how do I say it like it would be very convenient in a sense to say that oh I was not scared of water that was just you know some ch- childish thing but I think it was real and I think what happened was there was some type of catalyst that you know, there was a pull effect. Maybe it was my friends that started wanting to surf, um, and then that really pulled me to face a fear. And like, I, I have a hard time explaining it. It really is hard to explain. But you know, it's it's the same situation as like facing the start line of Red Bull Heavy Water. You know, you're 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 calculating the fear. You're calculating risks. You're methodical, um, and I think. It just, the phobia disappeared for me mm. because I started really paying attention. It's like, oh, that's wh- over there. That's where the waves are breaking. That means the current's going to push along the beach this way. Um, and that means I can get back to the beach here. So, so it's, as a kid, it was totally scary. But as I got a little bit older, maybe some of the, you know, the dark, scary things suddenly came into the light and, I looked at them from a different perspective and I think mm. we all, you know, it's like, isn't there what, Walt, in Walt Disney's Winnie the Pooh, there's one of the films where, you know, there's the big, big, dark, dangerous forest. Um, but in, in the, in the other light, it's, it's the magical forest and it's not that big and scary, but.
0: It's all about perspective, isn't it? And again, you know, it sounds, it, it sounds like you, you developed a degree of control. And once you develop that control and understanding, potentially that erodes that that fear and just gets you on that yeah. different path.
1: Yeah, definitely. Once, once once I I felt in control, it changed because I think it was you're right. When I when I felt out of control, I couldn't I couldn't do anything. Then I was paralyzed, mm. and then it's like back to those you know fight flight or freeze uh, situ- like reaction patterns. So, um, but I'm definitely thankful that I overcame that fear and whoever helped me do, do it. Cause I, I probably didn't do it alone either. Like I, mm. I'm sure my dad and my brother and my friends were the ones that helped me, you know, see the light.
0: This is the Supper FM podcast with my guest Casper Steinfath and we'll be right back. As always, a huge thank you to Starboard, who are once again this season's main sponsors. Starboard has a history of innovation across water sports, starting in 1994 by revolutionising the design of windsurf boards. And they've brought that bang up to date recently, bringing foil windsurfing onto the Olympic stage with their IQ foil package. Starboard got behind stand-up paddleboarding in a huge way in the early days and continued to lead the industry to reduce their environmental impact. Their focus on innovation brought them seven world champions at the ICF Worlds last year and all of them were using their Lima paddle range. They continue to improve and innovate their boards and their paddles for all abilities across all flavors of the sport, including adventure. And you can find out more about Starboard through their website, which is linked to in the show notes. Now for the rest of my conversation with Casper Steinfer. So just, just coming back to your water education, a lot of the current tops up athletes, particularly those from the other Hawaii, not the cold Hawaii, they grew up doing a load of different water sports depending on the season and the conditions. You talk quite a lot about surfing. Did you get exposed to any of those other sports growing up or was it pretty much surfing for you?
1: Um, it was predominantly surfing, but I I mean, here in Klitmuler and Cold Hawaii it is a windsurfing hotspot. Uh so I was exposed to windsurfing. Uh I was I was exposed to a lot of different, like, you know, swimming and football and all kinds of other sports that a kid does. Um, but but I it was really like a, it was a little surf culture here, but you know, it was a young surf culture. Like we didn't have the legends of, say, like Robbie Nash or you know, Laird Hamilton or those guys around. So, um, but it was predominantly surfing that, that, you know, captured my imagination and then, Mm. and then, and then stand up paddling came in, in my teenage years. Yeah, because
0: one strength of having that wide water sports exposure is that it develops a, a range of skills. But I suppose at, at its core, surfing, you know, as you've mentioned, allows you to read the water and you go out in uncomfortable positions. You know, you're always wet, basically. Do you, do you think real deep exposure to surfing was an advantage for you or, or has been an advantage for you on the racing circuit?
1: I think it was a huge advantage. And I, I still believe that. A lot of um, a lot of athletes that come into stand up paddling with a surfing background possess some natural skill sets. Like for me, like you got got to look at like stand up paddle racing. It's it's not this linear thing. It's it's still developing. And like if you look at equipment and technique and like different types of athletes that are performing well, it's still changing. But in those early years, like I started racing in around two thousand and nine um you know a lot of the races we had back then were were ocean races races and you know of course if you have a surfing background and you're paddling through waves it's a no brainer that you're going to like i could feel when i was paddling either through or uh with the surf you know it was like i did not have to allocate as much of my focus on the waves because that was mm-hmm. like um how to say like it was uh um, it was subconsciously just something that was there, and like I could see other guys were just like so fixated on, you know, the wave, and you know they were losing all their focus on paddling. So, so mm. in, in that way, it was a huge benefit. But what I also uh, experienced is that like, even if you go to a flat water race, like say on on a lake, we had like we had a classic race down in Germany some years called the the eleven. No, what was it? The Lost Mills. And and even there, like when you're paddling in flat water, when you have so many boards pushing around and, you know, just creating wakes and side bump and the chaos, definitely anytime you're dealing with chaos and many moving objects, a lot of the skill set from surfing comes in. And yeah, that's I, I could definitely feel a benefit from that.
0: And you thrive in in that environment, in that in that racing environment, because obviously your specialty is on the sort of shorter course, technical surf, sprints disciplines. So I've heard you talk before about how you fell into stand up paddling. It was um, your uncle's uh, influence, I understand. Was it a, a Hawaiian <laughs> shirt and a cigar was involved uh, as well?
1: Yeah, you you got the story right there. It's um, I was on a surf trip with my my family and, and my uncle from California. Um, we were in Portugal on the island of Madeira. And this is like 2007 or 8. And, you know, I had never seen a stand up paddleboard before. And I just remember the waves were small one day. And my uncle Tim, you know, he, he is out messing around. And suddenly I see him come paddling around the corner. And he's wearing, he's standing on this board with like his shorts on and, you know, a Hawaiian shirt, sunglasses, like a hat. And a, he has a freaking cigar in his mouth as well. And he just looks like I remember I had the feeling he looks like the biggest idiot in the whole world right now. And you know, he was just a goofball. He loved playing around and and you know, we laughed and he caught some waves and made it look fun. Mm-hmm. And then we tried it and, you know, I ate my own words because it was it was just something very special about standing on the water in that sense. And and it it started as a bad joke, but but you know, I think I think at at that, just shortly, like at that point in my shortboarding career, I was kind of hitting a wall where I was reaching a point where everyone was so serious and competitive. You know, like you just got, it was just this very uh, limited tunnel vision people had Mm. in that, at least in that environment I was getting into. And then my uncle Tim just kind of comes in from the side with that clown act or whatever it was and, you know, showed that they're like having fun on the water uh, is key
0: and it's that uh, adaptability isn't it of the sport so it it sounds like that's something that you've always been stimulated by new opportunities you know testing yourself against different things and just giving you that sort of diversity and the ability to just explore because that's a joy in itself isn't
1: it 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 is it is and you know it's kind of like you know when you're when you're at the family family party family birthday or whatever you know when you're posing for a group photo and you know everyone's standing there and like no one has a has an emotional expression on their face. You know, everyone's kind of just stone faced. Yeah, I, I I can't handle those situations. I I I got then that's when I like oh let's do something funny or um I I I really enjoy you know maybe I'm not the best person at you know I I don't even know what the English term is but like you know I'm not so good at running repetitively running something. Yeah, I like breaking in new boundaries and territory. Mm. Um, building stuff, thinking of n- new ways to do stuff. So, so that's where stand up paddling really appealed to me because it was this man, it was this this whole new world, uh, and and who knew where it was going to go. So, so I, I enjoyed like being able to to latch on and like steer it a little bit in what mm. I thought could be a fun direction. Well,
0: it, it certainly was, and 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 that was what did you say? Two thousand and seven, two thousand and eight, something like that. In, yeah, in one of those winters, yeah. And and then you were racing not long after that. And I know that uh, your first race is a was a race down here in Hamburg. And I think your dad's probably protected now, but uh, he uh, he had to lie to to get you in there, or you lied about your age because you were <laughs> you're underage, but you got I in. Was
1: I was underage and it was my first race. I remember we drove down like 5 hours down to Hamburg where it happened and it was just, you know, it was I was curious, you know, what is this thing and like, you know, as a young male, I was also curious to see where do I rank compared to everyone else. And we got there and, you know, I was young, too young to enter, so I just kind of looked at my dad and said, "Hey, I'm I'm 16, right?" And he just nodded, <laughs> "Yeah, today you are 16." And And I ended up, uh, you know, it was this World Cup where, you know, it was all those, the top names in the sport, those early years, like, you know, Bart Desuart, Ikulu Kalama, Eric Terrien, you know, Ernest Johnson. There's all these characters. um, Mm. And I was just like amazed looking at them. Uh, Paul Jackson was there as well. And uh, I just got such a kick out of it. And, you know, ended up, uh, ended up kind of stealing Robbie Nash's, uh, I ended up legitimately stealing Robbie's board. For, yeah, I, I was
0: going to say borrowed and my question.
1: Yeah. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Got hold of it somehow. <laughs> somehow got hold of Robbie's board um, and ended up winning the amateur race, which, mm. um, which, you know, was huge. Uh, I felt ecstatic and, you know, had all these German, uh, you know, people just clapping and yelling and uh, ended up getting a wild card to compete against the pros and, you know i remember it was like just it was i was walking on water it felt like uh in that final uh ended up finishing 10th place or something but but i think that moment kind of cemented for me that okay the stand-up paddling thing Mm -hmm. i like i like the sport i like the people and you know i just realized like this is what i want to do more of so that's where the whole virus uh completely just took off and um well, and, absolutely
0: yeah. and and you play down coming 10th amongst all the those legends but um but i'll, I'll just draw a veil over over that one for a moment but <laughs> in terms of robbie obviously that was the start of your relationship with nation they've been a, a sponsor of yours all the way through what contributions robbie made to, to your career to date
1: um robbie has probably been you know, apart from my uncle tim um <laughs> robbie has been like the biggest player in my stand-up paddling career um after, after hijacking his board in Hamburg, um, he remembered me for that. And, you know, the next year I came back, I had, I was on a contract with Nash. Um, he, Robbie gave me boards, uh, to use at first, you know, just helped me out. Uh, Robbie, what I always admired, I still admire about Robbie is that he's an athlete. And, you know, he, he was very good at like seeing where I was and seeing what type of, of mentoring I needed you know, whether it was understanding what type of, of equipment is good for certain conditions. Robbie helped me understand how to ultimately talk to a camera as well. Robbie's, mm-hmm. is, is, like, he, his career has been successful also because he was able to portray feelings and, you know, more than just stand on a podium and smile. So, so Robbie has been probably the defining, you know, factor on my career were also... He treated it more as a lifestyle than, say, like uh, just pure sporting and um so so yeah i've i've been I've been writing for Nash since two thousand and nine, and I'm still on Nash, and you know, part of uh, developing stand up paddle equipment and foils and whatnot. so so I still have a, a a relation there that I'm really, really proud of. and you know, um, I think. All I can say is that I'm very happy Robbie was there at that point because yeah. because I needed someone to look up to. And, you know, growing up again in the, in the small cold water basin of Scandinavia, you know, it's even though the internet exists, there's very it's very far to Hawaii. And like, especially in those early years of paddling, it was in Hawaii and California that everything was happening. So Robbie was kind of, and through him, Kai Lenny and Connor Baxter, you know, they became my connection mm. to broader stand-up paddling world
0: in terms of your your racing career we've already mentioned you're a specialist at the sort of technical sprint type events which generally tend to be the 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 sort of spectacular action heavy tv ready events there are lots of variations in lots of different locations but could you just explain the 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 formats and the variations and what it is about those events that you really love
1: well i mean yeah, there's many great styles of racing, um, and like the long distances are amazing in their own sense, but I think what captivated my imagination was with the sprints and with let's, let's call it the technical style races, where you know the sprints can be anything from like 200 meters. Um, the technical races are somewhere generally between, I don't know, one and a half kilometer and like four kilometers like if we just put them all under one umbrella, they're relatively, um, they're relatively short and action packed. That means, you know, there's a lot of buoy turns. Um, there's a lot of running on the beach either from the start line to the water or from the water to the finish line. Um, it's like kind of a cross of, it's almost like a, sometimes there's there's more running than paddling, but, um, you know and then you can put the courses in the in the surf as well so you have the extra factors of waves current wind and you know ultimately it's like this cocktail of ingredients that create so many uh, variables um where what i like about it is that it generally prevents just the strongest athlete from winning like mm-hmm. you have to be tactical you have to be uh smart about you know depleting your energy resources at the right time uh And I guess my favorite thing is that you you should never give up in these style of races because even if you're like separated from the lead pack, Mm. if you're behind them, you might catch a wave that Mm. they don't catch and suddenly everything's open again. So I was drawn to the chaos. And again, I think that's from my upbringing. I enjoy when there is a lot of mess because I see some people kind of freak out during that and, you know, can't create order. But yeah. for me, there's like so much there's so much opportunity inside chaos mm. um, and yeah that, that you know that's kind of been my thing i
0: yeah well it, it's about adaptability and flexibility, mm-hmm. isn't it really and true you know, for, for someone who looks for new opportunities everywhere and, and novelty and mixing things up, you know it sounds like the the perfect environment rather than sort of structuring mm-hmm. and, and predictability and and in, and you know I'm, I'm speaking to you now. You know you've you've succeeded in so many events. I so said multiple world champion. Where are you now in terms of your your racing and your competitive aspirations?
1: Um, it's it's an honest question, and I'll I'll try to answer honestly because I'm I'm in a very tricky place right now. Um, I've been racing pretty much nonstop without any major breaks, like except for uh, COVID. In 21 um or 20. Uh, I've won six world titles so far and got to travel the world but I'm kind of sitting in a situation now where like I've I feel like I've I've been through this it's like a pattern that has repeated itself many years you know you you come in early in the season you train your ass off create a base then competition season comes, you have the races you focus on and then, you know, it's, it's, it's physically and mentally exhausting, you know, to like, it's, 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 there's nothing new about it. It's performance. Um, Mm. but I definitely sense that I'm at a point now where I've, I've raced a lot. Um, and I can sense that I'm probably more drawn to other types of things than, than just hardcore racing. Um, if I just look back the last few years, like these projects, whether it's the Viking crossings or circumnavigating Denmark or, you know, building the the Midsummer Vikings team event. Uh, I think racing is just kind of something that's still part of me, but I like, I don't know how to really describe it, Simon. Like I'm, I'm definitely mm-hmm. like at a crossroads in my life where it's given me a lot so far, but there's mm-hmm. also so, so many other challenges I want to take up that. To be, and this is probably what's, like, I still had a, like, watching the, the Santa Monica race on the APP, like, following that this weekend, not being there myself was, you know, it, it's amazing to watch athletes perform at the highest level. I just don't know if, um, like, with so many other things appealing to me, mm-hmm. uh, and knowing how much it takes, how much sacrifice you got to put to be at, at peak physical level to compete that's a sacrifice it's and like Mm -hmm. there's no it's not like the early days of paddling where us surfers you know had a good enough base and had a lot of skill that we could kind of you know half-ass it sometimes like so it's it's a it's an interesting time let me put it like that i'm not sure that i'm done with racing but it's like Mm -hmm. i've been part of it for a lot of years now and and who knows maybe i continue maybe i don't but uh
0: well, there are plenty of evergreen athletes out there. If you did decide to step away for a while, I mean, Candice is still uh, ripping it up, and you know, mm. you know, and, and um, you know, there's plenty of examples. But yeah, there are so many opportunities um, out there, and, and we'll, we will talk about that for a second. But I just want to ask you, um, you know, as we speak, and, and as you mentioned, we're, we're speaking at the end of June 22, and yesterday the APP Santa Monica Open has taken place. There was a bit of um, a controversy i'll put it that way in terms of the the men's race which led to an unusual outcome on that connor won the sprint um but we've got more competitions you've raced in london before are you intending to race again in london or, or is that still sort of under consideration
1: i really hope to be back in london um it's it's on my it's on my list to be there like i'm planning on being in london um Hopefully I'll be there as an athlete, but, you know, given that I've spent the last three months, um, paddling uh, or two months paddling around Denmark, um, mm. my physical shape right now is not exactly prime for racing. I'm more of like, a look at me. I'm not a formula one car right now. I feel more like a 1975 diesel, uh, engine. <laughs> so, so, um, I, I'm, I'm definitely gonna try to make it to London, but, um, time will have to tell. Uh, if it's mm. race shape, I'm in or not, but um, but I'm I'm heading to the UK for uh, the Trent 100. Um, oh right, and uh, you know I I like that's an event that's been on my radar for a lot of years, and maybe I've actually kind of avoided that event some years because I was focused on being in prime racing shape. Mm-hmm. Um, so so that it's you know it's a different scenario this year
0: yeah absolutely and and that is a fantastic race and uh, from all accounts um a good uh, evening to be had after the the various different days of racing there as well
1: so i hear so i hear
0: yeah and and you know the, the plus side if you don't race the APP in London. I mean I've spoken to a few athletes about it, and and who knew? Apparently, when you're racing the distance, race down the Thames, you know it's not an open bus tour. You're hardly aware of the Houses of Parliament and Big Ben sort of flying past. So so you know you might be able to sort of see see a bit of the course if you're observing and commentating or doing whatever you're doing. So so just. To finish off on the race stuff, I know that you you had a few little routines that you had before, um, which got you into the zone before competition. Just tell us about your your sort of sus- um, superstitions and your mm-hmm. your sort of patterns.
1: Well, I have I have a very you know over ten years of racing, I developed a, a very strong pre race routine, um, and you know that essentially starts already from you know when the race week begins, you know arriving uh, as, as early as possible and, you know, uh, g- getting focused, paying attention to the conditions. But the, the, the thing that probably stands out the most is every time I'm on the start line, I try to just take a, a plunge. I just try mm-hmm. to jump in the water, you know, like a minute before the start. And even if it's cold, I like to do that because it, it kind of, it just heightens all my senses. Like I'm my, uh, when I hit the water, like all my my mind just gets a shock from the cold water generally. Mm. And that means that my, my hearing sense, my, you know, my, my muscles start twitching and I just feel, you know, ready. Um, I think that's the one that people see, like that's the visual one. Um, and then my, probably the other, the other, like, uh, how do I say it? Like pre-race routine that I really stick to is I put on heavy metal music, uh, literally like, you know, the last 30 minutes or so before the race, I try to, you know, zone off. Um, because when you, when you're at an event, like just picture it, you're walking around and there's so many people and it's, you know, people want to talk and there's cameras, there's music, there's all these distracting factors. So for me, it always worked just trying to stay in my zone, but it's always funny because every athlete has their own way of, of coping with, with with um, situations, and I remember, I remember. Um, I don't know if you've talked to Zane Schweitzer on this podcast yet. Not yet. But no. Zane, Zane is like the most he's like the most colorful character. But I always loved Zane at watching him at events because I was just thinking like I can't do that. because like, he he would always like instead of me where I try to like kind of just close off, he embraces it. Like almost mm. the more sociable, the more uh, music, the more dancing, uh, the better Zane generally performed
0: yeah well i mean we've all got our own patterns and just yeah i did i did promise that would be uh, the last racing question but uh (laughs) go um, ahead heavy water um i mean it's it's an insane absolutely insane um collection of of races and i guess the question that I will be leading to is clearly you've got a, got an in with Red Bull. What are the plans for future competitions? Are you aware of any of that? But just talk us through some of those, those wins because, you know, I mean, it was, it was full on frightening, you know, and that's an, as an observer, just getting out there and, uh, you know, you, you've won it twice. Just tell us about that, those experiences.
1: I'll, I'll try to, to summarize it, but it, it's heavy water could be a whole a discussion in itself because mm-hmm. it was, uh, to, to sum it up short, it was a psychological drama. Um, mm. both edition or all three editions that have taken place, um, you know, in short Red Bull heavy water, probably the craziest race in the world of stand up paddling. It uh, took place, uh, three or four times in San Francisco. And what was unique about the event was, uh, there was a three or four week standby period for each event, which means that one, one would, or we would race on the day that had the biggest waves. Um, and you know, it, we would, need a minimum of 10 feet, uh, before the contest could get the green light. And some of those events probably had slightly bigger than 10 feet waves, um, pushing mm. 15, like, I don't know, size is relative, right? But It was big and trying to paddle race boards through that type of surf is just, you know, there's some physics, there's just some, there's some physics that are not really made for each other. And basically you would generally, we would race from, from the beach in and out through the surf, um, a few times. And then, you know, once we'd made it through the surf a few times, we would paddle to Golden Gate Bridge and the Bay of San Francisco, so the race was a mixture of, you know, like a, a 10, 12 kilometer long distance and a heavy technical race. And I think like I could really talk forever about this, Simon, so just break me off whenever it gets too much, but
0: you you, cra- you carry on. You carry Okay. On the,
1: the way I approached the events was because it was a World Cup and, you know, there was a lot of prize money on the line. You had the best athletes there in the world. So. All the ingredients for like a high octane battle were present, and then you know factor in the the angst and the you know not fear but more angst of mm. the swell that was arriving. Uh, it just made for some days leading into the events uh, that were horrible. They were freaking terrible. Like you're just imagining these death waves, and uh, you know you're having a hard time sleeping. And and especially the night before the races, it just it's too much. Um, mm-hmm. at least, uh, I had a hard time dealing with it. Um, but then, you know, I, had, I had on the two occasions that I won the race in 2017 and 19, I think my approach became more that one of, of survival rather than racing because it was, I felt it was wrong to think about it as a race, because if you go into race mode, generally you'll start to make decisions that are more based on speed and, Speed can sometimes be just, uh, just it, it blinds you. Mm. So so when I approached it, I always looked at, you know, reading the, the, the conditions and um like San Francisco and Ocean Beach. Which Ocean Beach is the name of the, the venue where the waves are. Uh, it's characterized by having these like three sections. There's like three points where the wave breaks. Uh, there's the inside section, which is like the shore break, you know, right where you enter the water um that was just like a constant washing machine and you know to get through that you had you have to just be consistent and push hard the second second zone as i and this is just my personal description of it like people will have other opinions but the second zone is kind of like the the rough one that's Mm -hmm. where the waves are you know they're they've already broken but there's just mountains of white water rolling towards you I like just picture that you're as far out as you can see, there's almost just white water coming at you that's six or eight feet tall. And you can generally get your board over those sections if you're like skilled, but you're not going to make it through until the waves stop. When the set, you know, relinquishes and, you know, there's a, a little bit of, of pause between the waves. And after, you know, when the set stops, the way I remember it was then then came the really interesting part where when you're pushing out, like, then you're going to the third section, which is, I call it the lottery, because the third section is like all these random sandbars where you kind of know where they are, but you kind of don't. And when you're at that point, you're paddling really fast and chances are that you're going to have a set approach around the same time that you're in that zone and you kind of have a decision because like you might make you either you sprint your guts out and make it over or you kind of brace for impact and Mm. i just remember it was always at that point that um you know people either made it or they broke um and like the thing with ocean beach is like it's a saga in itself, but there's so much water moving. And I think my key to victory was acknowledging that the, the shortest route was not the fastest route. Like you gotta, it's like a river. You gotta go wherever the water pushes. Mm-hmm. And I remember in seven, 2017, it was Kyle and Connor Baxter that were pushing each other really hard. And, you know, they were battling each other so hard that they kind of took a bad path. And, when I saw that, I just became very clear that, okay, I'm not going to go that way. There is, if I go down the beach, there is a rip current and that rip current took me straight out. So, um, and that was the ultra short version of, of heavy water, but it's, it's one of those races where it's, it's more than a race. It's, you know, you, you got some survival modes activated.
0: And any idea about whether or not that's going to be reactivated, or or are you up for the next iteration, or have you been there and done that?
1: <laughs> every every time we finished the event, I think all the finishers had the feeling that, yay, hey, it's over. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I mean, part of me, you know, part of me thinks it's so legendary that I mean, it has its place in the history books already. Mm. But I I hope it returns. I really uh, would love to see Heavy Water back on the calendar. Um, I don't know if it's planned to come back. I know there's talks about it between, uh, Red Bull and the APP world tour. Mm-hmm. Um, I've definitely like every, every time someone's asked me about it, I've clearly advocated, yes, we need it back. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, I think, I think we have a lot of athletes and this is super biased from my side, but you know, we have a lot of flat water races in the world. I think we do need some we need at least some uh, some ocean uh, carnage event, or I don't even know what to call it.
0: Well, I think that's a pretty fair description. And, uh, you know, certainly made for, for TV, um, proper gladiatorial competition, very suitable for a Viking, I think.
1: <laughs> exactly.
0: I hope you enjoyed the first part of my chat with Casper. And next week, you can hear the second part, which is called the Viking crossings where we talk about his adventures, explorations and some of the experiences that really change the way that he sees failure, opportunity and being resilient. Since that episode was recorded, the London APP has now been switched to September and I'm still planning to be there because it's going to be an awesome weekend and I hope to see you there too. If you want to make sure you don't miss out on any episodes this season, then please follow us on your favourite podcast app to make sure that the latest episode downloads to your device automatically. And please think about subscribing to our weekly email newsletter, which is at subfmpodcast.com forward slash list to get updates on what we're up to. Okay, until next week, I'll see you on the water.